Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, David Hornick of August Capital. David is a really established venture investor and blogger. You may have heard of Venture Blog, which is the first VC blog. Quickly, the courses at Wall Street Oasis that I talk about every week that keep this podcast going, they really are incredible. They're the most comprehensive thing out there with thousands of crowdsourced questions and case studies, interview prep and modeling training, whether it's investment banking, private equity, a hedge fund, or management consulting. Check them out. I'm sure they'll help you. Some of these new finance companies are so cool. Since I've been working in fintech, going to events, meeting people, hearing about new startups, I'm amazed with the companies that are making products for younger demographics and changing the way we interact with finance. The banking system is so antiquated. Checks and the ACH system haven't changed since 1974. How crazy is that? It's obvious that this industry is ripe for disruption. Just like any other business, people think that regulation will keep things the way it is, but that won't last forever. Venmo made putting your bank account information into an app commonplace. Robinhood is now making free trading the norm. Zero, which is a really cool debit card that offers rewards, will make that the new normal all while the incumbents do nothing. Well, not nothing. Marcus from Goldman is awesome. I use it now. And JP Morgan has said that they're going to offer free trades. But come on, what 18-year-old is going to use JP Morgan over Robinhood? It's tough to change behavior. I still use E-Trade and pay money for every trade, but I'm slowly moving things over to Robinhood. What you want is for your business not to have to change behavior, but to ride the wave of what's happening. Right now, Gen Z isn't getting bank accounts. They don't have credit cards. They're leaving the legacy system, and banks are scrambling to figure out what to do. What if there was an app that organically onboarded every 18-year-old that goes to college? That app for messaging is GroupMe, and for payments, it's Venmo. But Venmo doesn't solve the problem of how difficult it is to collect money from a group. That's where my startup comes in, PayClub. If we become integrated into the club and fraternity network of colleges, then every year, every new freshman will download our app once they get to school and join a club. So while right now it's a little more difficult convincing college seniors to download and use PayClub, even though it reduces a big-time pain point for them, 
Once we're part of the system, that's it. Every year, a million new college students onboarded without doing a thing. That's why Microsoft bought GroupMe for $85 million a year after they started. So yes, PayClub is trying to make collecting money from a group simpler, but in doing so, it's going to become the bank for Gen Z. Hey, David, David Hornick of August Capital. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So you have been a venture capitalist for a long, long time. Um, but I don't know that your career started off on like the venture capital path. So I'd love to hear, you know, you're going to college. What are you thinking that you're going to do in your life? Yeah, no, it definitely didn't. In fact, when I was in college, uh, I had no idea what venture capital was. What's more, I probably, if you had said that my job title would include capitalism, I probably would have shunned you. <laughs> I think uh, I got to law school with sort of two interests at the time. I was a fanatical musician. I would love music and music technology. And so I spent a whole lot of time in the uh, computer music lab, a place called Karma, the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics, making uh, noise slash music. And then I had a lot of interest in uh, civil rights and the law. And I also spent a lot of time uh, working in and around politics and uh, and civil rights and uh, and was sort of a pre-law poli-sci guy. So I ended up with two degrees uh, undergrad. One was in computer music and the other was in political science. And uh, at the end of that path, I sort of had every expectation that I would go to law school. And uh, but but as I finished up my undergraduate degree, I was a, I decided I wanted to spend some time overseas. And so I was applying for some. Uh, scholarships and fellowships. And one one of those was that uh, I was in the process of filling out a, uh, a Fulbright application to, to study the impact of technology on musical theater. I was, uh, I was a big fan of musical theater. I was seeing what technology was doing to change the, the, the art form. And so that was of interest to me. And then at the same time, I was applying for some other uh, broader um, scholarships and, Along the way, I was granted this uh, Rotary uh, scholarship from the Rotary Club to go study in uh, Cambridge at Cambridge, England, and uh, and it was the path of least resistance, I guess. And so I accepted that. I stopped the rest of the process and uh, um, and ended up going and studying criminology at uh, the University of Cambridge, which was consistent with my law side of my world, which was I thought that I was going to be a public defender. That seemed like the the path for me at the time. And so uh, studied criminology, got to learn more about how the how um, crime and punishment and, and all of that. And then I went off to law school, again, still expecting that I would ultimately be an attorney and likely a public defender. So uh, now I'm in law school. I'm similarly doing a bunch of stuff. I'm you know, the musical director of the drama society because that was fun. I was doing this thing called the Prison Legal Assistance Project, which was great. I was uh, in the Journal of Law and Technology, which was extraordinarily nerdy, et cetera. Um, and uh, by the time I got through with law school, I had spent some time uh, – in, in the courts as a, as a sort of um, wannabe public defender and kind of came to the conclusion that that wasn't the perfect fit for me. Uh, ended up in New York clerking for a judge, and I worked as a litigator uh, uh, representing 
big corporations and giant lawsuits that that matter a lot mattered a lot to them and um and in 1997, I'd been a litigator for a handful of years, and my wife sort of said, you know, you don't, this isn't the job. You don't seem to love this job every day, and so maybe we should think about what other opportunities there are out there. And I, so I started exploring, and I ended up uh, moving back to Silicon Valley to start uh, to join a law firm that represented startups. And I was uh, new to the startup world, but uh, Jerry Yang and the early Yahoo team were were dorm mates of, and friends of mine, and they were and they were building something really exciting. And I found the the early days of the internet exciting, and so uh, I returned to Silicon Valley to start representing startups again. Still thinking I would be a lawyer, that I would ultimately be an in-house attorney at some technology company. My dad had been a technologist; I had seen what that looked like, um, but. Uh, Within a few short uh, weeks of having spent time back in Silicon Valley working with startups, I realized that startups were actually these incredibly exciting uh, aggregations of smart people trying to do interesting things that ideally would change the world. And it it became clear to me that there there was something more to it than just sort of the... the, you know the the capitalism, the the un, un, unabashed capitalism that uh, that was certainly something I shunned as a as a young student, uh, and and so that landed me in this world of representing startups. I was super excited about startups and everything they had to offer, and started going to board meetings and working with with these young companies, and got to know a lot of venture capitalists along the way, and in in um, 2000, I had the good fortune of the partners, the then partners at August Capital, uh, had gotten to know me because I was representing Evite and they had invested in Evite. And, and you know, after one of the board meetings, uh, an incredible venture capitalist named Dave Marquardt said, "Have you ever thought about the venture business?" Which were, you know, sort of dream words to hear. And I said, "Yeah, I've thought about it." And next thing you know, we were in a set of conversations that. Some four months later, landed me with an offer to join them as a uh, as a VC at August Capital, and that was in 2000. So, 18 years ago, and uh, and I've been at it ever since. Wow, David, I, I love the story. I love that your wife was the one that said maybe you should do something that you really love. Sounds like a cool woman. Um, but I want I want to go back to this very beginning. So your passion was music. Why didn't you do something in music? Why was why were you still trying to overlay this you know law criminology thing on top of it? Did you think, oh, I just can't make money with music? No, actually, when it comes to music, the reality is I was a, a crappy musician. I mean, I think I was. Uh, I learned this very quickly. I was uh, I was a very good musician uh, by New Hampshire standards, where I grew up. Uh, by but by by national standards and by global standards, I was really not a good musician. I was a, I was a fine musician, but I was, it was one of those where it was like, gee, this is not a, this is not a path to success for you. Uh, but there were lots of things that one could do in and around the music world that would have been exciting. And in fact, at one point while in law school, I contemplated becoming a, um, an entertainment lawyer and having the opportunity to be part of that world. But the truth was that if I was going to be a creative person, I wanted to create. I didn't want to represent creative people. And so, uh, you know, so I sort of moved on and I had lots of interests. So, uh, yeah, I suppose it's one of those things where I I, uh, I had a childhood filled with music. I now have 
you know, now I periodically play in a band uh, on New Year's Eve. Um, but uh, I don't think I was ever going to be this the next great musician, and so I don't have a I don't have a huge amount of regret around that. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll buy that. So now you're a lawyer. You're advising startups, and you're you're in that room. And uh, I'm sorry, what was his name? David, the guy who offered you the. Okay, so why did he offer you that that job? I mean, like a ton. I mean, I, I'm sure it was different 18 years ago, but it, it still was a competitive field. And what was it inside of you, or what did he see in you that said, "Oh, I want this guy to come work for me"? Yeah, no, that's a great. That's a great question. And you know, just to give you some context, Dave Marquardt was the only private investor in Microsoft. He funded that company. Uh, sat on the board for 33 years. He was the first investor in uh, Seagate, which you know created the and and revolutionized the disk drive and Sun and Compaq. He was he was just an incredible investor. Um, I was at board meetings, and I have to say that I was simultaneously a very good lawyer and a very bad lawyer. Um, the training for being the lawyer sitting in a board meeting is that you're there to take notes for the minutes. You're there to address legal issues. You're there to point out things that are probably ill-advised from a legal perspective. Um, and those are all fantastic and important roles for the, for the lawyer to play. Um, I, on the other hand, sat in these board meetings. I was young. I was stupid. I was inexperienced. Uh, and I was like, oh, this... We're all sitting around uh, talking about the business and, uh, and pe- smart people who have opinions are sharing those opinions. So I guess I'll share my opinions. And those opinions sometimes were about the law, but they were also sometimes about uh, other things. They were about business. They were about, hey, have you met this person or you should think about this way of, you know, et cetera. And um, I will tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't without its peril. I had, I took that same approach to all the companies I represented and all the board meetings I attended. And in one instance, it got me fired when I uh, contradicted the venture capitalists around the table and they didn't like it. And literally I was, I never returned to another meeting. I was fired by the company. So, uh, but in this instance, I was at the board meeting. I had Lots of thoughts about how this company Evite might be, uh, you know, move successfully through the war- technology world, etc. And I think the people around the table generally uh, appreciated the suggestions I had, the thoughts I had, and so it was enough to kind of trigger in uh, my then partners, uh, my ultimate partners' minds. Gee, this this guy isn't just a lawyer; he actually has other, he has a, a business instinct that may be valuable and. Uh, and that got us talking about what other aspects of my career w- might be useful as as they thought about making me a venture capitalist. But just to be clear, even when they ultimately offered me the job, uh, I was told, you know, lawyers suck at this job and you'll probably fail. But we like you, and so if you're if you're willing to join us, then we're willing to have you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a cool story. What? Why do lawyers usually suck at being venture capitalists? And, and were, there, were there things that, from your law background that were helpful when you took that job? And then, and then yeah, why did, you obvious, why did you prevail? Yeah, I mean, well, so, you know, uh, first of all, what, what Dave Marquardt said and would say is that, um, you know, there are kind of two, two types of people in the business world. One is a, um, 
One is a principal and one is an agent, right? And the agents are out doing the doing the bidding of other people. Um, it's not a judgment. It's not a moral judgment. It's just a it's just a role, right? And as a general matter, lawyers are not principals. They're not the ones making the decisions. They're the ones uh, who are who are acting upon the decisions. And so, lawyers and accountants and uh, and um, and the like. Uh, consultants are agents. They 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 do the 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 tasks assigned by other people, whereas venture capitalists and CEOs and and entrepreneurs are principals. They are they own um, the issues. They make the decisions, and then they uh, then they have other people act upon those decisions. And so, to my my partner Dave's mind, it was a very hard act to go from being an an agent to becoming a principal and he felt that 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 as a general mind in risk aversion and with in in coming up with um with potential solutions but not with choosing what's the right path etc and so that was that was his uh that was his point of view got it okay i i buy that i mean how old were you when you were when you got this job eighteen years ago? Uh, thirty-two. Okay, so still pretty fairly early on in your career, pretty young. And you know, this is something that's common. Like people that go into investment banking, which is on the agent side, they mostly all want to go transition to the principal investing side, the private equity side, and it's like a pretty established path uh, to do that. But once you've been a banker for a long time, been a lawyer for a long time, been an accountant or a consultant for a while. That's it. Like you're not going to switch. You're not going to make that, that switch to the, to the principal side. So, okay, I'll, I'll buy that. And so, yeah. How, how was it making that switch? Like why, why was that simple for you? I mean, it seems like you obviously spoke your. No, 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 it was not simple. (laughs) Um, but but it wasn't that it was hard in the sense that uh, it wasn't harder because I was an attorney. It's just that it's a it's a really hard transition, right? It turns out that there are you know the venture business, despite its outward appearance of being this very easy thing of meet some people, hey say hey that's a good idea, give them some money and uh, be successful. It turns out that there are a million ways to to fail at this business. There are very few ways to be successful, and so. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think in many ways I was, uh, I was lucky and luck plays a huge role in the venture business In other ways, a bunch of things that I otherwise liked doing and, uh, and have proven to be not bad at, uh, were useful to the venture business, right? It turns out that venture capital is lar- is, is a large chunk of relationships and having people like and trust you, et cetera. And, um, and so I had a lot of those relationships, both through being a lawyer, but also having spent four years here at Stanford and having had a bunch of other, uh, you know, a bunch bunch of other friends who've done interesting, exciting stuff. Um, I I'm, I liked technology and have been immersed in it from from the day I was born. And my dad was, uh, you know, an early computer scientist, so I had the good fortune of that. And uh, and I had a general sense of how companies could be successful or unsuccessful having, you know, even back in the day when I was a litigator, having had the good fortune to represent great companies, get close to 
very senior people in those companies and uh, and see how they thought about the business they'd run. So, you know, I think that it was that I, I am naturally curious. I'm naturally, and you know, uh, positive and enthusiastic. And I had a lot of folks that I knew in and around the, the technology world that allowed me to get up to speed uh, relatively quickly. But, uh, but I think it's, I think it's really hard for anyone. It certainly was hard coming out of the law. I think it will always be hard to, to be a venture capitalist. So, you know, you're supposed to be an expert in picking which ones are going to succeed and which ones aren't. And granted, that's very, very hard. Is it because there's so much luck involved? I mean, everyone who you're investing in is super smart. They're all going after big markets. They all have maybe track records and, and traction. And so what is it that that's the differentiating factor? Yeah, I mean, look, um, it is certainly the case that it's my job to to pick and, uh, and, and I, and I get it right some of the time and get it wrong some of the time. No question. Um, what I would say is that the, the process of picking involves a whole lot of factors. You know, you're, you're trying amazing teams and what is an amazing team is an, is an incredibly varied and interesting question. What does that mean? Um, and then you're trying to, um, you're trying to fund, um, in big markets, you know, predict that there are giant markets and wrong. In fact, uh, I uh, didn't invest in the city of Uber because I felt like the um, Uber was not chasing a big enough market at the time. All it was was the Uber Black business, which was you know limousines on demand. And it wasn't clear to me how many people needed limousines on demand, et cetera. And so didn't you know didn't uh, didn't didn't pursue that despite the fact that my uh, that the founder of founders of that company I had backed before both Travis and Garrett. Um, so I, so sometimes you get it wrong. You think there's a big business and it's not a big business. Sometimes you, you know, you, sometimes you uh, misunderstand the space. Sometimes there are really big challenges that face companies that didn't exist when you, when you funded them. Right. Um, so I, you know, I funded a, a great company that was in the advertising space and the media space. They built a great product. It was growing quickly. It, in fact, got to be over a uh, over a hundred uh, million dollars in revenue. You look and go, okay, that's a company that's going to be one of the winners, and it and it looked like it was. And then it faced some really big challenges from uh, um, you know from the, an ever changing advertising market. And it turned out that the that the business didn't didn't continue to grow after 100 million dollars in revenue. And so, so yeah, I think that there there it is my job to be a, an expert picker. Um, and uh, and it turns out that that's an extraordinary hard job. And the very best venture investors uh, on the planet are in fact wrong more times than they're right. Yeah, then that's the way the business is. Um, so that's that's interesting. That was fun to hear about some of those winners, some of the instances where you've been able to learn. Um, so David, let's this will be the last question. Advice. You know, you're talking to your son or daughter or yourself before you you know you're still in college. You're not sure quite what you want to do. You're, you know you want to be a hard worker and put yourself in a good position. What do you tell a person like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the first thing I tell them is do things you love because the reality is it's, um, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard enough to be successful and happy. Uh, it's certainly going to be harder if you're pursuing something that you don't that you're not excited about yourself. And so, you know, in the end, there's sort of this abstract sense of, oh, I'd love to be a venture capitalist or I'd love to be an X or a Y. Uh, and what I always say is don't do anything along the way to to get to some future outcome that isn't isn't fun and engaging along the way because the likelihood that you get to that outcome is low. So you might as well be enjoying the thing that you're doing uh, along the way. And look, I, I ultimately landed in venture capital by you know, mistake. It's not that I knew that the venture capital business was a great fit for me and that I would love it, uh, um, despite the fact that those things are true. Uh, it took a long time and a, and a sort of meandering path for me to find venture capital and say, holy cow, that's the job I love. But along the way, I did a bunch of things that I really did enjoy. And when I was, you know, when I saw other things that I might enjoy more, I went and did those things. And that served me really well. So do things you love and do them with people who you want, who you respect and you like and you want to spend time with. And I sort of think the rest of it will work out. Right. Enjoy the ride and uh, work hard. I, I like it, David. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. No, great. Great talking to you. Okay. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back next week on Tuesday with another episode. Until then, let me know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes or send me a note, alex at wallstreetoasis.com. Thanks.